Well, it's good to be with you tonight. I'm here live via pre-recorded video, and uh, right now I'm probably uh, traveling on a road somewhere in uh, Arizona, and uh, instead of trying to have somebody else teach tonight, either do what I was going to do or not do it, uh, the best thing we came up with is we'll just pre-record this thing. And so uh, we're here tonight. We're in this year, kind of year-long series that we're doing through May on uh, the beginning of a movement, talking about you know the Christian faith. Uh, as more than just you know, some sort of religious concept or more than just you know, uh, uh, some sort of denominational or philosophy or something. We're, we're looking at it set into the context of the first century, but really what we're looking at is the movement and the significance of this movement and some things that happened and some critical things that have occurred. And we've been doing this for about four weeks now. And, and tonight and next week, we're going to look at a couple of encounters that Jesus had. Uh, Jesus encountering two very, very different people. In, in fact, tonight we're going to look at a radical encounter with a righteous man. Next week we're going to look at a radical encounter with a sinful woman. And these two stories occur right next to each other, really. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 4. And so we'll be in chapter 3 tonight, the first part of it, with a story that's somewhat familiar because it um, has probably the most famous verse in all of the New Testament in it, in John 3.16. Uh, it's the story of Jesus and his encounter with a man named Nicodemus. Now, to set this up, Jesus is uh, in this first year of ministry. Uh, his major um, ministry movement in Galilee has not occurred yet, though he's done things. He's done a miracle at Cana. He's, um, you know, he's, he's done some healing. He's done some things. But the, the big public, the big wide open movement where everybody's seen him really hasn't occurred. Now, he's kind of started... In, in Jerusalem, when you come uh, to the second chapter um, in John, after the wedding feast in Cana story, he comes to uh, the first Passover of his public ministry. Uh, he does some things, and he cleans, clears out the temple of the money changers. He does it twice in his ministry. Uh, the first time here is in John chapter 2. So people are knowing about him. There is some buzz. There is some, there's some anticipation about Jesus. And even though he hasn't done a lot of his major public stuff, it's, there's still things going on. And religious leaders are taking note of him, and we come to a story found in the third chapter of the Gospel of John. And it begins this way in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, we're going to stop right there and talk about Nicodemus and talk about some things to truly understand where he comes from and, and who he is. We don't know for sure who Nicodemus is. There are some uh, other writings outside of Scripture that talk from this period of time about a, about a wealthy man named Nicodemus who lived in Jerusalem. It could be him. But here's what we know about him. We know that he was in the area from Jerusalem. Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. Uh, we've talked some already about Pharisees. I'm not going to go over all of that again. But a Pharisee, uh, there was about 6,000 of them. Uh, they were all over Israel. And, and they were the men who were focused on keeping the law of the Jews, as I've shared with you already, and including on Sunday mornings. By the time you get to the New Testament, the Jewish religious leaders had taken what was basically a faith a relationship with God that the people had in the Old Testament, taken Ten Commandments that God gave, which were you know, the ten ways in which you show your faith. They were the result of having faith. They had taken them. They had turned them into 613 laws. And in doing so, they had taken the Jewish faith and turned it into a religious system. And you have people now like Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, all these different groups. You have a lot of things that you never saw uh, in the Old Testament. And so these things have come about. 
And Nicodemus is one of these Pharisees, and Pharisees lived all over. He lived in Jerusalem, and it says he was a ruler of the Jews. Now, this is a unique phrase, and most likely it means something like this. He was a part of a group of 70 men. These 70 men were made up mostly of Sadducees, but also of a few Pharisees, and they were called the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin sometimes is pronounced, and they were, in essence, with the high priest as their leader, the ruler of the Jews. And, and they, were, they were kind of, to the extent that the Jews had any autonomy, the Jews, from the Roman perspective, had the right to rule over themselves in a civil sense, to make religious decisions, you know, and to find people and to kick people in and out of the Jewish uh, system. Uh, they controlled all this. It would be these guys, in part, not in totality, who would put Jesus to death. Certainly, Nicodemus wasn't a part of that, nor was Joseph of Arimathea, a few other, most likely, Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees were focused in the temple. They were um, in Jerusalem. They were the ones who controlled the temple. When Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple area, it was the Sadducees that he ticked off. But Nicodemus, you know, in, in the concept and what we need to see is not all the Pharisees were against Jesus. In fact, the Pharisees were the ones who were most connected with the people. And there were some pretty decent Pharisees. We know that later on, from John 19, Nicodemus is a believer. Joseph of Arimathea is a believer. We know from Acts that numerous Pharisees became believers. Eventually, Paul did. And so, probably the reason that Jesus was hardest on the Pharisees was because they were most closely connected to the people, and they were the ones who clo most closely understood what the Messiah was all about. This man, it says, was a ruler of the Jews. He was probably wealthy. Here's what we see in verse 2. He came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. So we see that Nicodemus has come to Jesus for an encounter, for a conversation. Next week we'll see in John 4 that Jesus goes to a woman, a Samaritan woman, and has a conversation with her. And he encounters her at a well. And she comes to the well and he initiates a conversation. Here Nicodemus comes to him and initiates a conversation. Now, Nicodemus in chapter 3 and the Samaritan woman in chapter 4 could not be any further apart as the east is from the west. And so what these two chapters do, it talks about and shows us the universal message of Christ. That Christ has come not only for the Jews... But Christ has come to bring salvation to all people. The woman is a Samaritan, half Jew, half Gentile, was from a very despised people. And I'll talk about it more next week. The Jews despised her and despised all Samaritans. So we're going to have this contrast between two people. Here is the epitome of, of Jewish self-righteousness. Now, one of the things that I've shared with you about the Pharisees is, and I've shared this you know, a bunch on Sunday mornings, last few weeks, and Wednesday nights. I'm not going to go into great detail now. But the Pharisees believed that you are a part of God's kingdom simply by being Jewish. But your place in God's kingdom was determined by your self-righteousness, by the keeping of all the rules and regulations. Here is a man who lived that way, but we can probably understand that this man was more than just looking for self-righteousness. There were still people who wanted to be with God, who longed to do things right. This was a legitimate searcher, a legitimate Teacher. He was a man who was truly looking for the way to the Lord. Now, he was probably very benevolent. He was probably very kind. He was a man who was truly, sincerely trying to, in the things that he did, find a way to God. But he was basing it on his righteousness, his own sense of doing what is right. 
And so he believed that he was right with God by the things that he did, but he still had an earnest desire to be right with God. So it says that he comes to Jesus by night. There's a lot of emphasis and discussion based on why he came by night. It's one of those things that really don't matter. It has no impact on the decision. Some people think, you know, the night symbolizes darkness, that he came in spiritual darkness. Some people think he came at night because he didn't want to be seen with Jesus, the kind of idea. And there's some that probably more likely is he came by night because of his position. He wanted to talk to this person. He didn't want to be bothered. He didn't want people interfering with him. He probably had a few people come with him. He wouldn't travel alone. Uh, most likely, though, he came at night because night was the normal time of discussion. Like today, people worked during the day. People were busy in the day. Jesus, even though you know, he wasn't technically working for a job in Jerusalem, was probably dealing with people. Nicodemus was dealing with people. Probably had arranged a meeting at a time just to get with Jesus, to come to him. Some think that they met at the house of John. Uh, because probably John, the disciple of Jesus, may have had a home here. Um, in you know, John 19, when Jesus looks at John and says, take this woman into your home, some believe that was in Jerusalem, though it probably was Galilee as well. But in, in some respects, in some capacity, there was a place where Jesus was staying, and Nicodemus arranged to come and meet him. Many think may have been on the roof of the house at night in a cool time where they could just come together and, and, and have a discussion. Here's what he calls Jesus. He says, Rabbi. And, and the idea of calling him Rabbi is important because this concept of Rabbi is that of a teacher. And so he is, he is being respectful of Jesus. Sometimes people call Jesus' names, you know, may call him Rabbi or whatever to flatter him. In all, in all likelihood... He is calling Jesus rabbi as a sign of respect. Now, Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, would be considered a master teacher. Whether he was an actual rabbi or not, we don't know. But he was an expert in the law. So the very fact that he was willing to give Jesus some status at all is fairly important. And he says this, We know that uh, you have come for God because you couldn't do the signs or the things you have done unless you have come from God. So one of the key things is that he understood that some of the things Jesus had done, by now he has done some signs, he's done some miracles. In the Gospel of John, uh, there's a lot of focus on the signs of Jesus, the things that he did to point to who he was. And a lot of those would be understood as miracles. So, you know, talking about the things that he's done, the things that he had taught, none of that could happen unless he was from God. So somehow, somehow Nicodemus realizes, not so much necessarily that he's the Messiah, he's not, he's not proclaiming him to be the you know, God in the flesh, but he does recognize that some way God has sent Jesus. He may know the stories of John the Baptist and what occurred. Uh, most likely he just sees Jesus as arriving. He sees the way people react to him, that somehow God is active and involved in this. So you have this, this setup, this sense of flattery maybe, certainly some respect, but Jesus responds to him. Jesus doesn't engage in any idle chit-chat. He gets straight to the core of the things. Here's what Jesus says. Truly, truly, amen, amen, verily, verily. This is an emphatic expression. He says, I say to you that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I remember in, in the 70s, and some of you do, when uh, gov then-governor of Georgia, Jimmy Carter, was running for president, he talked about his faith. He talked about being born again. And, and the, the term born again was kind of something that was only known inside the Christian circles, especially evangelical. Jimmy Carter was a Southern Baptist. Uh, in our world, we used that phrase. And everybody caught on to this idea of born again. And it began to be kind of misused so that people would talk about being an athlete being born again or someone's singing career you know, changing and being born again, and it lost its meaning. 
But the idea of being born again means to be born fresh or to have a clean start, something new. Some of your versions may actually have being born from above because it carries the idea of something that has come from God. So he says, listen, in order to inherit the kingdom, in order to be a part of the kingdom of God, which is critical because the kingdom of God was everything, to see the kingdom, to see is to experience you have to be born again. Now, this is important because Nicodemus believed that simply by being Jewish, he was part of the kingdom. I mean, if you were born Jewish, no matter what else happened, you were part of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God was not in the spiritual sense that we think of it, but they believed that, that the Messiah would come and establish a literal kingdom. That this Messiah would gather up an army, come and defeat the Romans, and there would be that kingdom. And Jesus is the Messiah. And so there are some ways that Jesus is even pointing to or alluding to the fact that he is the Messiah. He says you will not see the kingdom unless something radical happens in your life. And that's why I said this is a radical encounter. The radical thing that had to happen in your life was not to be born Jewish. The radical thing that happened in your life that had to happen was not that you would be self-righteous in the eyes of God by your religious deeds. What had to happen was something different, something that was completely new. You had to have a spiritual birth. You had to be born again. Something new had to happen in your life. Now, Nicodemus could probably understand this if Jesus was talking to a Gentile. If he's talking to a Gentile who might somehow convert to Judaism, certainly Nicodemus could see this and realize that that a Gentile might have to have a new birth. But as a Jew, that was beyond his comprehension. So we're, you know, we kind of take this for granted now because we've had this in the the New Testament and been reading it for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, a couple thousand years this idea has been around. But to someone who was Jewish and was raised in the religious system that Nicodemus was raised, this was radical and he surely didn't comprehend. He didn't understand what Jesus meant. So this is what Nicodemus said to them. How can a man be born when he is old? Because Nicodemus is an older man. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he? Is it possible to literally be born again? Because this is what he is understanding. To Nicodemus, it doesn't dawn on this teacher of the Jews, this knowledgeable man, it doesn't dawn on him that he needs a spiritual birth. He's taking Jesus literally. He says it is impossible to physically have another birth. So he is simply telling Jesus, I don't understand this at all. And then Jesus replies this way. He answered. Once again, he says, truly, truly. Amen and amen. Some of your old versions have that. It's an idea of being emphatic. I say to you. Now, Jesus is saying, this is coming from me. So Jesus is speaking with a degree of authority. He is saying, I say to you, with some authority and authenticity. Here's what he says. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So he says, that which is born of the water, that which is born of the Spirit, you have to have two births, a water birth and a spirit birth. Water sometimes, the concept of speaking in water can be a little bit confusing. Many people think this speaks of baptism. And in doing so, 
in part because they believe in something we call baptismal regeneration. In other words, regeneration, to be saved, to be born again, requires baptism. That's why some groups baptize infants. They believe that to be saved, you have to be baptized. You cannot be saved without it. So they baptize children. They sprinkle infants. Well, we know from the balance of Scripture that baptism doesn't save you. I mean, think about it this way. If baptism saves you, then in essence, Christianity has become a system, just like Judaism. There are certain things you have to do. You have to believe. If baptism saves you, that becomes an act of work. That's what saves you. Then Christianity is just a religious system. So it can't be that. Some think that maybe it's not speaking of a baptism as saving, but as a cleansing, going back to the baptism of John. Now think about what Jesus says after that. That which is of flesh is flesh. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. So there's a contrast between flesh and spirit. The Jews believed that simply being born physically, you would enter to the kingdom. Jesus says that doesn't happen that way. So most likely the term water refers not to obviously baptism or even the cleansing that it symbolizes with John's baptism. But water refers to a physical birth. When you were physically born, you know, without going into the biology of it all, but which I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm no biology expert, as evidenced by the three times I took it. But the idea is, you know, when you're born, you're in, you know, you're enclosed in a watery environment. You know, there's, we talk about the water breaking and all that stuff without being graphic and gross and all that. Which isn't a problem doing video. When you're video, you can be a whole lot more graphic because I'm out there to look at your face when I say that stuff. But here's the thing. Water refers to the physical birth. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is of water is water. Obviously, in order to be saved, you have to first be born. So he talks about that which is born of the water and then that which is born of the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit. So you have to have two births. One is the physical birth, Nicodemus. And the other is the spiritual birth. So he says, that which is born of the water, uh, the flesh is flesh. That's us. That which is born of the spirit is spiritual. So why are you surprised if I say you have to be born again? Why are you amazed at that? Then he uses an illustration about the wind. In essence, we all know the wind is there. We all experience the wind. You can hear the wind. You can feel the wind, but you don't really see the wind. And you don't really know where the wind comes from. Now, I realize today in our generations and, you know, with meteorologists, we can tell you where the wind comes from. But in the day of Christ, nobody knows where the wind comes from. It just is there. And so the same thing with the Holy Spirit. There's this experience of the power of the Holy Spirit. You have no control over it. You can't dictate it. You can't control it in any ways. So here's the thing that he's saying. In order to enter into the kingdom, it is not based on a uh, on a system. This is radical. It's not based on being born Jewish. It is based entirely on the work of the Holy Spirit to have a spiritual birth. So Nicodemus then <laughs> didn't understand. And he says, so how can these things be? Now, imagine, this is a man who understands to some degree the Old Testament. What, what we call the Old Testament, they call the scriptures. He understands the Jewish religious system. And he is saying, how can someone be born spiritually? Again, I don't get this. So Jesus asked a question. He said, are you a teacher of Israel and you not understand these things? You're a teacher. And, and, and the, the idea is kind of an indictment. You are so caught up in the religious system that you don't understand truth. Listen, it happens to us all the time. 
I see it quite often. I see people who get so caught up in the system of Christianity that they create that they lose sight on the essential spiritual elements. Now, listen, I'm going to talk about this some Sunday. What we believe matters. I get that. Belief is important. How we live matters. It does. But you can't take what we believe in how we live and substitute it for faith. Really, it's the result of faith. In some ways, it helps us lead up to faith as we teach children. It doesn't replace faith. But here's the thing. If we're not careful, if we're not careful, we get caught up, just like Nicodemus did, in the system of it all and forget the spiritual aspect. You know why it's so important? Like, we worship the Lord. We come, tonight, we're kind of worshiping him, mostly on Wednesdays, which just study. We have you know, wonderful music. You know, Brian, you know, if, he, if he remembered to show up, uh, Brian did a great job leading, leading the worship. I know he did. We come to study. On Sundays, though, you know, we come to worship, whether you're in the traditional service or whether you're in the other two services, you know, our, our regular services. It's a time of worship and celebration. We, you know, we, we preach. You know, we ask the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. We're here to honor God. It's a spiritual encounter. When you pray, it's about the spiritual aspect of being connected to God. When you read the Bible, as important as it is to learn and study, it's still about the connection of God's Spirit speaking to us through what he teaches us. What we understand and what we realize is there is a faith connection that is fundamentally spiritual. Nicodemus didn't get that because everything in Nicodemus' world was about a systematic way of approaching God. Learn certain things, believe certain things, act certain ways, and things would be right with God. So Jesus tells him this. He said, you're a teacher. You don't understand this. Truly, truly, once again, for the third time, he says emphatically, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we seen, have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. So he's saying, I'm speaking to you of what I know, what I've experienced. You don't accept that yet. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, you have been taught You've been, you have, you have the, the scriptures, you have things that you should know and you don't believe them. You're not going to believe. I'm speaking, I'm before you right now telling you things you don't believe. How are you going to believe the heavenly? No one, here's what Jesus says, has ascended into heaven. But he who descended from heaven, the son of man, the son of man was his way of speaking of himself. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man must be lifted up. In verse 14, 15 says, so that whoever believes... Uh, will in him have eternal life. Now, back in uh, the book of Numbers, there, there's a story of serpents, of the, of the sin of the people of Israel. They sin against God. He sends serpents to come. The serpents with, with, with the venom bringing judgment are, are coming. They're biting the Israelites. You know, they're, they're, they're dying. They're getting sick of, of the, the venom, the poison. And so Moses, it's, it, you know, God's leadership, Moses creates a, a, a look of a bronze serpent and he holds it up on a stick. And all who look to that stick with the bronze serpent will be healed, will be saved. Now, it's not about putting your faith in the stick. It's not an idol. The purpose of all that is, by looking at that serpent, they are acknowledging their sin and their dependence upon God. It is a faith proposition. Trust what I'm telling you. God says, this is what you do. You trust God. Later on, Nicodemus, excuse me, uh, uh, 
Hezekiah in 2 Kings, I can't remember if it's chapter 16, 18, whenever he comes to power, the people of Israel have started worshiping this bronze statue of the snake. And so he destroys it because it's become an idol. But in Numbers, with the time of the Lord, it was an act of faith. And he says, so Christ is kind of foreshadowing. He says to Nicodemus, in a time of judgment, which is what Israel is now in essence, because of the religious system, the only way you can escape the judgment of the system, your disobedience to God, much like in, in Numbers, is to look upon the one who is on the cross. Christ is going to go to the cross. And on going to the cross, he will be lifted up. And you put your faith and trust in him. So he's, he's taking uh, uh, something that goes back to the Old Testament, to the scriptures, to help Nicodemus understand. Now, for us, because you know, we, don't, we don't look at that incident in Numbers, and, and, and we don't preach it, we don't think about it, it's not part of our history, that is, that is somewhat difficult for us to grasp. Nicodemus, it would make excellent sense. He would understand what was going on by what Christ was teaching. But, but God works in, in, some, in marvelous ways. And following this story, which to Nicodemus would make sense, about trusting God, depending upon God, but what he's lifted up, and so you must also. In light of this, we come to probably the best-known verse in all the New Testament, in, in, in many ways all of Scripture, for us as followers of Christ, John 3.16. Let me just say this. Some think that the message of Christ with Nicodemus ends here. And then verse 16 through 21 is John commenting on what happened. Now, many also believe, like your Bible probably has that in red, that it's the words of Jesus. I tend to think that it really doesn't matter, because even if Jesus didn't say this, if John wrote this, he wrote it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't make it any less true. Sometimes we worry about the wrong things. Whether Jesus said it or not doesn't make it any less true. I tend to think he said it. And here's what verse 16 says. And you know, well, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever might believe in him would not perish but have eternal or everlasting life. So now we come to the subject of who Christ is. In verse 15 it says, whoever believes in, will have, in him will have eternal life. Jesus likens himself back to what happened with the, the Moses and the serpent. He says belief or faith in him when in this case you're referencing God has eternal life. The phrase eternal life means life without end, the ageless life. Something we all want. You know, we all live forever somewhere, right? Everyone spends forever somewhere. We either spend it in eternal death, that is judgment, separation from God, or eternal life, that is a relationship with God. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time talking about John 3.16 in detail. I have messages where I've done that. You know, this, you know, if I preach an evangelistic message and I come there, I think I preached from John 3.16 not too long ago, maybe a year or so ago. But simply to say this, in light of what Jesus says about being born again, he explains something to John, um, excuse me, to Nicodemus, that goes beyond a system. He says, Nicodemus, here's what you need to realize. I'm going to bypass your system, and I'm going to go back to the way things have always meant to be. God so loved the world, even though the world, not just the Jews, by the way. The word for world, cosmos, it, it can mean the earth, it can mean all the people of the earth, it can mean those in opposition to God. He loved all the people. For God so loved all the people that he sent his son, his one and only son, that's Jesus. That anyone who has faith, who believes, who has faith, not as part of a system, not as part of a religion, but who has faith in Jesus, anyone who has faith in Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life. The idea of perishing is to be destroyed. 
It's used later on in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 10, when Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I give to them eternal life. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give to them, not that they earn, not that they get it through a system. I give to them eternal life so that they by no means shall perish, that there's no way for them to ever perish. John 3.16 says, if you believe, you will not perish. Back in John 10, verse 28 and following, he says, those who have eternal life will by no means, it's emphatic, ever perish, be destroyed forever. So people who believe you can lose your salvation, you got a problem with, and and I come across people all the time, you know, you can lose your salvation. How? Well, you can renounce your faith. Well, then you never had faith. Here's the thing. Try to understand this. Jesus says you have eternal life. You shall never perish. How can you renounce what Jesus says will never happen? I mean, in other words, how can you renounce him and perish? And now people say, well, you know, it's, it's the It's the unpardonable sin. That ain't the unpardonable sin. Read the passage where the unpardonable sin is. The unpardonable sin is accrediting to Satan that which you know God has done. It is not renouncing Jesus. At no point in Scripture does it ever say that renouncing Jesus is the unpardonable sin. If you renounce Jesus, you simply never had him. I mean, come on, you've got to read the Scriptures in the context of which they're written to understand them. Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will never perish. You will have eternal life. You will live forever. Is he telling the truth or is he lying? And if you say, and people say, well, you know, if you renounce Jesus, you lose your salvation. Then you're saying Jesus is lying. You're saying he's not telling the truth. And you're caught up in a system where you are responsible for your salvation. You decide when you're saved, when you're saved because of what you believe, and you decide that you're unsaved by your denial of Jesus. You created a system, and you're in opposition to the Word of God. I don't know how to put it any clearer. If you don't understand that, if what I say bothers you, you're more than welcome to have an appointment. Come see me. I'll be happy to explain it to you. He says you will never perish. By no means will you ever perish. Instead, you will have life eternally. Period. Notice what he says. We never look at verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world through him might be saved. So his primary purpose isn't to come and judge everyone, but to save them. Does that mean there'll never be judgment? No, of course there'll be judgment. But he didn't come for that reason. Sometimes we act as followers of Christ. That Jesus came so that he can judge everybody and condemn everybody. It's like we want him to condemn everybody. He says, I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. He who believes in him, verse 18, is not judged. He who does not believe in him has already been judged. If you don't believe in Jesus, you already condemn yourself to hell. Denying Jesus doesn't send you to hell. You're already going to hell. You're already judged. Because he who has not believed the name of the only begotten Son of God, he has already rejected Jesus. This then is the judgment. And he now talks about light and darkness. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. That includes creating a system of belief, which Nicodemus did. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought or born in God. So he's saying, Nicodemus, 
And I don't have time to go into it because our time is up. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, I am the light. Because in, 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 in the, the, it's capital, light is capitalized in, in the text. In your living in darkness, your religious system has <laughs> put you in darkness. Do you realize that people who impose a system on Christians live in darkness? They do. They live in darkness. They confine people to darkness. And Jesus says, I have come to give you light. And that light has come for those who believe. So here's the thing. Next week we'll see a second radical encounter. But here's this radical encounter of Jesus and this Jewish leader, this man Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, with all sincerity and all earnestness, comes to Jesus to have a conversation with him. And probably this is a synopsis. It doesn't take but a few minutes to read this, so I doubt this was it. There was probably a long conversation, maybe before, maybe after. John, who was probably there, condenses it, but he gives us the heart of it. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you've got to be born again, man. What you're living right now, what you think is saving you, is totally reliant on your own works. It's a system that promotes self-righteousness. It is darkness. You have to be born again, spiritually born again by faith. you got to trust me with your life. This is Christianity, to trust Christ, knowing that when I trust him, he saves me. And that's it. He saves me from my sin. I didn't have anything to do with my salvation. He did it all. But he calls me to faith. In that first century, in a world full of religions, paganism, whether it be through the worship of Saturn, you know, the Roman system, Zeus, the Greek system, going back to the days of the Baals. Emperor worship hadn't come around yet, but whether later on it would be that, whether it was just through the worship of your ancestors, whether it was what the barbarians did, whether it was what the Egyptians did in Osiris and all of that, I mean, in Ra, the sun god, but whether it was what the Jews did in the rules and regulations, all those systems keep us from God. And what was radical about Christ is he said, faith, salvation comes through trusting me and only me. This is the message we must believe and this is the message we must teach and preach. I let you ask questions. I ain't got no way to answer them. So all I will say is, God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.